the New South Wales Country Hour with Michael Condon on ABC Radio New South Wales. Hello again and uh, welcome to the show broadcasting today from the Central West and Sunny Orange and I gather in fact that it's going to be heating up across the Central West and elsewhere around the state over the next few days. Coming up we're going to be talking about wine. Will China be reducing the tariffs on wine in the near future? And greenhouse gas emissions and soil carbon cutting through the noise for farmers to help them make sense of it. And we also hear from Water Minister Rose Jackson, who says she's not in favour of water buybacks in New South Wales, but they will probably still happen. Uh, well, I, I don't know because I don't intend on buying back any water. But as I've said repeatedly, at the moment, the water market is a private, freely accessible market. And if the Commonwealth chooses to participate in that activity. I can't stop them from doing that. All that and a whole lot more coming up. And you can always send us a text. 0467-922-684 is the number to text me here at the Country Hour. But first up, the ABC understands that China is on track to lift tariffs of up to 200% on Australian wine at the end of March, or maybe sooner, after Trade Minister Don Farrell met with his Chinese counterpart. Trade Minister Don Farrell held the meeting on the sidelines of a World Trade Organisation conference in Abu Dhabi on Monday night where they discussed the tariffs among other issues. China of course was the biggest buyer of Australian wine until 2020 $1.2 billion in exports then the country slapped hefty tariffs and trade restrictions on Australian wine as part of a diplomatic dispute over an investigation into the origins of COVID-19 this effectively halted the exports of those products Uh, many Australian uh, export products, uh, primary industry products, including Australian wine to China. Now, Justin Jarrett is a co-owner of Seesaw Wines in Orange, and he says that he'd like to see the tariffs come off as soon as possible. There's certainly some very positive chat going on. Um, It's just surprising that it's taken to this point, but I suppose they've got the right to use up until, uh, I think it's the end of April, to make a final decision before the Australian government can then make another decision. But, you know, we've got exporters who are ready to go. We've getting inquiries from importers. So, you, we, you know, we all figure that the decision will be a positive one. Yeah, and there was talk, it has been talk for a while, that March would be the, the D-Day. So I, I guess you're hoping it's going to be early March. Yes, that would be really good. Uh, you know, the wine industry as a whole just needs some positive news. It's been a pretty tough... 12 months for lots of people and um, you know, to, to have a, a market reopen that was a significant market would be a really positive thing to happen. But it's not going to just go back to what it was what it was before straight away, is it? No, we've got to rebuild the whole market again, unfortunately. What I would say is that uh, you know, we lost the $1.2 billion export market. Um, it's, you know, there will be a, a quick spike. Uh, but if we can get it back up to three hundred million, that would be a great result for the whole industry as a whole. And and are they uh, would you need to sort of push out the Spanish or the Italians or the French? Who do you need to push out of China? Uh, I think that's a, that's part of the. I suppose you'd say the bad news, Michael, is that all countries have had a reduction in sales to China. China itself has reduced the amount of wine they're importing. Um, this. We would be, in the end, if either we have to go back in and help grow the market or 
in fact, yes, it will be Argentina, France, etc. that we'll be having to fight for shelf space again with. Do you know why they're trying to reduce it? They're, they're trying to set up, set up their own industry, but they've got some climate issues, I gather. Yeah, so I was fortunate in 2012 to do vintage in um, Shandong province, and I, I came home and said to our guys, you know, that they will continue to push to have a, a, an industry, but the reality is that um, what they consider to be a fantastic grape-growing area, it, we would consider to be very, very marginal. So it's not an industry that, that um, they're going to be able to say we'll supply our own internally, um, but they do, you know, they will have 160,000 to 180,000 tonne, which is about the size of Australia, um, supply, but the quality's got a long way to go. Right. Okay. So they're going to they're going to be drinking it, going, mm, okay. Well, this this doesn't taste as good as Australian or French wine. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's the thing that you know there is still a love of Australia um, and Australian wine in China. They really do like our reds, and in fact, they're now looking at um, from what we're hearing, we'll be looking at a lot more at our whites as well. Um, there's a whole you know aspirational look at the Australians, look how we live, look how we live our lives, look how great it all is, uh, and. They want to part, be part of that through the bottle. The other thing is too. I mean, obviously, you're it's sort of more at the pitching. Orange pitches more for the premium market. But will this also be a fillip for the the bulk wine producers, uh, the grape growers that really have been struggling? And there's talk about uh, vine pools and compensation packages and things like. Did, would China coming coming back in? Would that really help them? Um, it, to an extent, but we've got to, you know, ex- we, as an industry, we do have to si- accept that a sub-$10 bottle price around the world is getting smaller every year. So China is no, going to be no exception. People uh, want to drink less but spend more, and that's a premium product. And what about your vintage? It's happening at the moment. What, what's happening? Where are you now, and is it looking all right? Uh, the vintage is, as always, Michael, it's the best one ever. <laughs> <laughs> At least you can joke about it. We always have uh, 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 wine grape growers and, and winemakers saying that. Um, look, it's been a really fascinating year this year. We started uh, the earliest we've ever started in Orange. Um, and and I say to people, it's, you know, sometimes you have early vintages due to drought and heat. That hasn't been the case. We've just had this beautiful growing season. The vines are happy. Um, we've had, they're not massive crops. They're good crops. They're, and so the vines actually really performed every day. It's just done its bit, done its bit. And we've got beautiful fruit, beautiful fruit coming in. Good yields. They're not exceptional. Um, and we will have our earliest finish as well. So it's really been an amazing year. Okay, so good quality, not a huge volume, but uh, you're, you're pretty happy with it uh, uh, as a result. Yeah, we've got sugar levels, so, and we've also got, like the last few years, there's been a lot of work on the acid sides because it's been cool. This year's just been one of those lovely seasons where you know, both acid and sugar have balanced themselves out, and we're happily picking away. Okay, Goldilocks year. That's it. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> they don't happen often, I can tell you. <laughs> no, that's right. I uh, appreciate your time. Thanks for having a chat. No problem. See you, Michael. Justin Jad, who's the co-owner of Seesaw Wines here in Orange. You're listening to The Country Hour. It's uh, coming up to uh, 12 minutes past 12. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio New South Wales. 
Well, let's turn to state politics now. And in budget estimates uh, today, the New South Wales Water Minister, Rose Jackson, was pushed quite a bit on a New South Wales Alternatives to Buybacks plan, which was released last week. And we had the minister on the program talking about it as well. In particular, she was asked about her opposition to water buybacks and if it's reasonable to think uh, that uh, those buybacks can be avoided anymore into the future. Minister, are you serious when you say that you're against water buybacks in New South Wales? Yes. So can you explain to me why then in your New South Wales Alternatives to Buybacks plan that was released uh, a few days ago, the plan itself states that this does not eliminate the prospect of water buybacks in New South Wales. They are going to happen under your watch, aren't they? Uh, Well, I I don't know because I don't intend on buying back any water. But as I've said repeatedly, at the moment, the water market is a private, freely accessible market and if the Commonwealth chooses to participate in that activity, I can't stop them from doing that. But Minister, you just said if the Commonwealth chooses, you know full well that that is going to be a part of what happens under the Murray-Darling Basin Plan. You've said in this document, page 7, we recognise that they will likely be part of the suite of measures that the Australian Government will seek to use. So you know it's going to be a part of what happens and communities are going to be impacted. You have to admit that. I don't know that, but I am concerned well, about that. That's why I've put that report out. But but you, you've said here that these will likely be an impact. You're, you're looking at different communities that you know will have that socio-economic impact of a water buyback. So surely your evidence has to be you are expecting that this is going to happen in New South Wales. If I wasn't concerned that the Commonwealth may do that, I wouldn't have put the report together and put it out there. The entire point of doing that work proactively is to demonstrate to the Commonwealth that there are alternatives. Absolutely I'm concerned about it. Absolutely they... Well, it's an admission that it's on the agenda. This very report and the wording in it indicates that you know that this is what the Commonwealth have as part of their their plan. Well, as I've said, I'm not the Commonwealth Water Minister. Yeah, I understand that, but you've got no power, as we talked about in the last hearing... You have no power to stop water buybacks. It's clearly part of the agenda from the Commonwealth Government. Um, So it's all very well and good to put out a brochure and say that we don't support it. But the fact is, it is going to happen in this state under your watch. I mean, I don't know that, but I am concerned about that. That's why I put out that report. Okay, so it's a 23-page plan in quite large text. Um, Can you tell me um, any of the new projects that you've identified in this plan? Well, I mean, the key pieces of work that that plan articulates are the acceleration of our SIDLAND projects Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I think that there is a lot of potential there. A key reason that we signed on to the Murray-Darling Basin Plan um, was because we thought that there was... um, a significant opportunity in those projects. Mm-hmm. So when will that? But they've all had their dates pushed back, though, haven't they, Minister? That's right. That right. We now so that's not going to happen any quicker under your watch as Minister. It's going to be delayed to 2026. No, not necessarily. We now have more time to complete those projects, mm. which is good. So when you say more time, when were they due for completion, and when do you estimate? Huh. I mean, they, they were due completed? for completion in in 2024. Right. Uh, I mean, that was not when they were actually going to be completed. The problem that we faced was that was when they were due, but 
there was zero prospect of that so deadline it's moved being from 2024 met. to 2026 Yes, that's right. And what that means is that we now have access to substantial additional funding from the Commonwealth to get them moving. Now, we have until 2026. A key part of that alternative to buybacks plan is the opportunity for us to accelerate some of those projects. I mean, I think there's something like 36 Sidland mm. projects. There's a number. Um, to accelerate some of those projects right. to get them moving. The other, um, there's a num number... Another key component of that plan is looking at rules-based changes um, to uh, contribute environmental benefits and water recovery. An obvious example of where we'll be starting that is around the Menindee Lakes. Mm -hmm. I've been clear that I'm not satisfied with the current rules as they exist between New South Wales, Victoria and South Australia and the Murray-Darling Basin Authority in relation to the management of the lakes. We're keen to change that. We're keen to have a conversation about how we may better manage inflows and outflows into the lakes and as a result of that potentially deliver environmental benefits and water recovery that would minimise the impacts of buyback. Rose Jackson is New South Wales Minister of, for Water and she was talking there in budget estimates about uh, the issue of the alternative to buybacks plan and the issue generally of buybacks here in New South Wales. It's uh, coming up to uh, 18 minutes past 12. The New South Wales Country Hour with Michael Condon on ABC Radio New South Wales. Well, the southeast Queensland bee industry is on lockdown as investigations continue into the extent of the Varroa Jacob Sinai, Jacob Sonai mite infestation in the port of uh, Brisbane. The insect is a different species to Varroa destructor that caused that mass devastation in New South Wales and Victoria that we were been reporting on for quite some time. But the Australian Honeybee Industry Council CEO, Danny Leferve, told Megan Hughes that the detection is still very significant to the industry. It's just another blow for our industry at the moment, another detection of a pest that we don't want. So we know uh, last week that there was a detection of a single mite in a central hive at the Port of Brisbane amongst six other central hives. There's been a lot of uh, surveillance around that area and thankfully they haven't been able to detect any other mites, which is a good sign to suggest that it might be isolated. When it comes to management, you know, in terms of the Varroa Destructor, there's the National Management Plan in place now. Is the, the Jacob Sono being treated in the same way or it will be looked to be eradicated from that Brisbane port area? Uh, so it will fall under the same process as Varroa Destructor in that it falls under the Emergency Plant Pest Response Deed and has a described process with a new detection on what happens. So currently it's in what they call the incident definition phase where they're trying to establish the actual size of the response that's needed uh, and if it's beyond the capability of Queensland Department to uh, run that or fund that response, then they'll come to the CCPP with a response plan to look to cost share that the same as they did for Varroa Destructor. Could you run me through the actual, I guess, the, the full process from detection to either eradication or management? Yeah, sure. So the uh, initial detection is is done by an agency. Uh, in this case, it was Queensland Department of Fisheries and Forestries. They notify the Federal Department of Agriculture that they've had a, a detection of what is considered to be a emergency plant pest. Uh, 
They then uh, notify Plant Health Australia, who are custodians of the deed. PHA determine who the affected parties would be for that pest, and those parties are notified. So obviously the honeybee industry uh, is a affected party in this instance, of which we are the representatives, Arvik. But the same affected parties as Rail Destructor are identified as affected parties for Jacob's own eye. So there's 26 affected parties identified. Um, and then we're kept uh, with situational updates uh, from QDAF about their progress. Uh, and whilst they're in the incident definition phase, determining the extent of the incursion and how big the response will be, they'll give us continual updates until the point they decide um, to submit a response plan, which is considered by the CCPP. If the CCEPP decides that the response plan submitted is technically sound, they'll make a recommendation to the National Management Group. The National Management Group will then ultimately make the decision about is it technically feasible to eradicate, is it cost beneficial, and are they willing to fund the response plan? And then if they agree, a response, a eradication response would be conducted on this pest. What do beekeepers in southeast Queensland need to do at the moment? Uh, so they need to adhere to the rules. So there's a movement control order in place, restricting the movement immediately in the area, immediately around the port. It's really important that beekeepers don't move um, away from the area. They can go and do surveillance on their own hives, doing alcohol washing. We know nationally, even with Rail Destructor, that we're not getting high enough levels of beekeeper surveillance using alcohol washing. We really encourage beekeepers, particularly in that southeast Queensland region, to do their surveillance, report that through the 123 portal uh, into QDAF. There's also a request with the movement control order and from QDAF to report your hive locations and to report any movements of hives in that area in the last 90 days. Um, and so we really encourage beekeepers to do that because that's the only way that we can get a hand on um, any risks of, of movement of that pest. How significant would you say this detection is? Uh, so this is not as significant as Rail Destructor in, in New South Wales. Hopefully it, it is caught early enough. It appears that way at this stage with the single mite being detected. We also know that Varroa jacobsoni, which is the species detected in Brisbane, is normally only found on Asian honeybees. But it has recently been established that it's jumped host in Papua New Guinea and Fiji to European honeybees. And the single mite was found in a European honeybee colony. So that, that is alarming. But to date, there hasn't been a huge impact from Varroa jacobsoni globally uh, on European honeybees. That's the Australian Honeybee Industry Council CEO, Danny Laferve, speaking there with Megan Hughes. You're listening to The Country Hour. It's uh, coming up to uh, 24 minutes past 12, and shortly we'll be crossing uh, to the uh, Wilmot Field Day to talk about soil carbon. That's all coming up uh, pretty soon. You're with Michael Condon for the New South Wales Country Hour on ABC Radio New South Wales. Talking about that issue there, soil carbon. Well, uh, let's head to the uh, north of the state now where dozens of industry experts and quite a few farmers as well have converged on the Wilmot station near Ebor for the annual Wilmot 
Wilmot Cattle Company Field Day. Of course, we broadcast from there with an outside broadcast uh, several years ago from the field day itself. Now, this year comes off the back of COP28's declaration to focus on food production as a key area to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. Amongst the speakers today is Dr Elaine Mitchell, who's a research associate at the Institute of Future Environments. She's talking about cutting through the maze, cutting through the noise of soil carbon science, including the ability of soil to retain carbon and also the importance of soil health. And she joins me now from Ebor. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. How are you? Very well indeed. And it's it's true to say, isn't it, for a lot of farmers, a lot of people involved in this issue, that soil carbon, soil carbon in farming can be a bit confusing. It's a bit of a maze, isn't it? Yeah, I think that um, I'd call this data hungry in in Australia. There just isn't too much in terms of long-term data to, to tell us what's happening to carbon in the soil. We do have um, data sets from, from other countries, but it's difficult to apply it to the Australian uh, context. But, you know, we have enough data to show us that, that soil carbon presents um, a great opportunity, but I, I think that we need to be realistic about the amount of soil carbon sequestration that, that we that we can expect in the long term. But if we have the right soils, the right management, the right climate, um, I think that soil carbon sequestration in Australia presents a great opportunity for farmers. Okay, so you, so it's uh, many people sort of saying it's uh, you know um, uh, the saviour for uh, uh, reducing carbon emissions or at least sequestering a lot of carbon here in the soil. You're saying maybe it's not the whole answer; it might be a little bit of the answer. And we also need to uh, look after productive agriculture as well. And the two aren't necessarily uh, they don't necessarily go together too well when you lock up land just for carbon. Yeah, well, in the case of soil carbon sequestration, you're not you're not really locking up the land. The land still remains productive. You're just locking up carbon in the soil. And, and in my view, you can achieve the dual benefit of um, you know getting more carbon in the soil. Also, makes it more productive. So, well, there, there are some there are some farms in the far west of New South Wales where they've done just that, and they don't do any grazing or anything on them, and they just uh, get the soil carbon check. But you think that's incongruous with the idea of it? Well, I, I would I would question whether that's the case because under the ERF, under the Emission Reduction Fund method, they have to apply new management practices to that land in order to qualify for, for accu-generation. So I, I'm not sure about the case you're talking about. Mm, okay. Well, let's just get back to that whole sense of um, uh, the, the, the two have to be uh, linked in together um, and it can't just all be about the carbon. Yeah, I think that there's a, definitely a danger where people get this kind of carbon tunnel vision. And I see the carbon income revenue stream being a kind of a, a nice byproduct of increasing the production and resilience of, of agricultural systems. And I work particularly within um, sort of pastoral livestock systems. So I, I see it as a convenient, the carbon anyway, as a convenient byproduct of that. And I think that it's you know, I, I, I really welcome a system that's that's rewarding farmers for the climate change services that, that they are providing in terms of carbon sequestration. Okay, and we're talking about uh, having carbon there sequestered on, on a farm, and we're talking mainly about grazing properties, are we? That, that's, um, in terms of my expertise, that's where I've done most of my research, is looking at grazing systems and, and um, increasing carbon sequestration within grazing systems, working across mostly Queensland and, and New, uh, northern New South Wales, looking at um, you know, what are reasonable bounds that we can expect to sequester uh, in the long term. 
So sequestering in the soil, not in the grass, obviously, because the, the, the cattle and the sheep are eating that, and maybe maybe in some of the trees as well? What's the, how does it work? Yeah, well, you, you, there's different method, methodologies under the Emission Reductions Fund. Um, I mostly work then with the soil carbon method, which is just looking at sequestration of, of carbon in soil, but there's a variety of methods. For example, you can do um, human-induced regeneration of um, of trees and also um, environmental plantings where you're actually planting the trees. In the case of human-induced regeneration, you're just regenerating areas that might, might have been degraded in the past. When I say degraded, I'm, I'm talking about uh, tree areas. So you're allowing them to um, regrow and, you know, go back to as natural condition as possible. Right, okay. So is it harder then, you're talking about grazing and soil carbon, is it harder to do it with cropping, with a cropping system? Um, yeah, I'd say that's probably probably a little bit outside of my my expertise, but I think actually in in, in some situations cropping might actually present more of an opportunity because in cropping systems they are usually quite depleted of soil organic carbon because they uh, because um, cropping heavily disrupts the soil, it breaks it apart, and allows the microbes to break down the organic matter and then it's released as carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. So a lot of cropping soils are heavily depleted of soil organic carbon. And this means that there's a greater opportunity to put that carbon back into the soil and replenish those stocks that have been lost. Um, so, yeah, I guess it, it, it depends on how, how you want to look at it. But, um, yeah. Because in, in a cropping system, they have to put a lot of nitrogen and, uh, you know, and, and some, there's some nitrogen fixation that happens as well. But, uh, you know, they're, they're putting a lot of inputs in and sometimes they, they feel as though it's uh, not, maybe not worth their while to sort of uh, look at the soil carbon equation. Yeah, and a lot of the, the carbon is obviously taken off as, as, as crops. Yeah, so it's taken, yeah. taken off off site and yeah. it's not being replenished back into the soil. Yeah, that's that's another issue too. And and but how do you so you you seem to be um, uh, maybe not as strident though as uh, uh, Professor Richard Eckhart from the University of Melbourne, who he says just flat out, don't sell your farm carbon. He mm. says it's better to just use it for farm production and for farm profit. How would you respond to to those words from him? Um, yeah, I, 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 I've definitely obviously heard uh, Richard. I've, I've worked with him before as well. Um, it's, it's hard to say where the, where the market is going in terms of you know, whether you want to keep your offsets for insetting purposes or you, if you want to sell them for offsets. The price might go gangbusters. Well, exactly. So hmm. I feel it's like it's too it's too speculative in terms of how the market's going to go. I, I don't know that. He didn't know that. So it's actually quite difficult to make make a call on that. But either way, you know, you you have you'll have the choice whether, you know, you get a more of a return if you're insetting within your own um, operation to to sell beef that's more um, sustainably produced, or whether it makes more sense to sell those credits to say a mining company to offset their emissions. But I, I don't think I can make that call. It's something that will evolve as the market matures and a producer will be able to get a better handle on what maybe what to do with their credits. Well, it's always better to have uh, more than one option to think about anyway, isn't it? Uh, uh, Dr Elaine Mitchell, appreciate your time and enjoy the field day at uh, Ebor. It's a great spot there, so uh, enjoy that. Thanks for joining us on The Country Hour today. Thank you very much. Dr Elaine Mitchell is a research associate at the Institute of Future Environments. You're listening to The Country Hour. It's uh, coming up to uh, 12.32. It's time to get some news headlines now from Hamish Cole. Hamish, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Michael. 
Most working Australians will get more money back in their pocket after the revised Stage 3 tax cuts passed Parliament. Under the changes, the tax break offered to wealthier Australians will be less than originally expected, but those on lower and middle incomes will be better off. New South Wales Police Minister Yasmin Catley has backed Police Commissioner Karen Webb, saying she has her full support. Commissioner Webb has been criticised for describing the alleged murders of Sydney couple Jesse Baird and Luke Davies as a crime of passion. The police force has also come under fire over its response to the Special Commission of Inquiry into gay hate crimes. Victorian firefighters are bracing for what could be one of the most dangerous days in years, with strong winds and potential thunderstorms exacerbating fires already burning in parts of the state. Dozens of interstate firefighters have joined efforts at an out-of-control fire near Ballarat, where thousands of residents have been told to leave. And Flight Centre has posted an $87 million profit in the six months to December 31. It's a significant lift to the travel agency's post-pandemic earnings after it posted a $20 million half-year loss. The company's revenue has also increased 28.5% to $1.29 billion. And there'll be more news at, at one. Thanks for that, Hamish. And, uh, yeah, there's plenty of the news. Not all of it's good news, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, a few grim things about yeah, the fires exactly. in Victoria in the, particular. The fi- and I've been watching the, the fire situation there, and, it's um, yeah, it's uh, pretty dire. And I know that area quite well because I actually reported as a rural reporter. I was in based in Horsham for three and a half years, so I know Ballarat. I know Beaufort as well. I've been to Beaufort many times, so I know that, that, that area. And uh, that to see that sort of damage that they have um knowing that area it's quite mind-boggling actually yeah and some of the footage a lot of people you're yeah. talking about a lot of people involved yeah well in thousands yeah. have been told to That's leave right. and whatnot and you see some of the footage it mm. is yeah not good signs it's scary That's for sure. scary yeah. and if it gets in the grampians and that's that's like super scary. Mm. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Hamish. Thank you. It's uh, coming up to uh, what is the time? It's t- uh, twenty six minutes to one here on the New South Wales Country Hour. Well, it's um, time to find out what's happening with the weather. Talking about the weather details, and uh, Stephen Stefanax at the bureau joins me now. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Michael. So we're facing some warmer weather here in uh, New South Wales, but thankfully not the sort of uh, devastating, catastrophic fire conditions we're seeing in Victoria, or not at the moment, anyway. Yeah, that's right. So we've got a low-pressure trough coming through, the, currently just entering the state. Uh, we'll move through the state over the next couple of days. Head of that, some fresh to possibly strong and gusty north and northwesterly winds. Hot to uh, locally very hot ahead of it. And we have a heat wave warning out with that. And as far as fire dangers are concerned, over the next day or two, including today and tomorrow, we might see... We'll see elevated fire danger conditions, mostly high fire danger, but possibly some uh, locally extreme fire danger for some uh, isolated pockets of vegetation as well. So um, not as much as what was on the Victorian side, but it's definitely getting hotter and um, there'll definitely be an elevated fire danger when I was bad as Vic. Yeah, and um, talking to, talking about that, um, I gather that the forecast has changed slightly and now it looks as though that cool change that we were talking, I think we were talking about a couple of days ago, is less, is sort of less powerful now and it's uh, this, this hotter weather is going to last a bit longer, is that right? Yes, that's right. So it's going to be two subly changes. Um, the first one with this trough and associated front which is going through will move up the coast on Thursday and that will affect the southern and central parts of the coast. It'll affect some part, it'll, it'll taper the temperatures off a little bit over the southern inland but it doesn't really put a, 
a, a big dent in the temperatures. It still stays very generally warm to very warm, even where the change hits. And then there's a second front sort of sweeping through the south to the south on um, Saturday. It's that second one, which creates slightly change which moves up the coast Saturday and Sunday. It's so we might have to wait till Sunday that we see a more bigger dent in the in the temperatures and seem to become a little bit more milder across larger parts of the state. Meanwhile, both of these troughs and frontal systems will be associated with showers and storms. So we'll see some local showers and storms over the next couple of days as well, uh, weather-wise. Uh, starting with isolated storms today, but uh, increasing a bit uh, as we head in Thursday, Friday, and particularly on Saturday and Sunday in the weekend as well. And I'm looking at some of the temperatures uh, into the 40s for some areas, like in the central west, Riverina, uh, in the north as well too. I, I, I didn't sort of catch up on that, but uh, are we looking yeah. at uh, fairly widespread sort of high high 30s, low 40s in some areas? Yep, um, low to mid 40s in the west today. So right. at well, Kenya, for instance, they're touching on 45 degrees for the max today. Right. As we head into tomorrow, maybe not quite as hot, but still into the low 40s across that northern inland. Even as far south as Forbes tomorrow, um, reaching top of 41 degrees. Um, further south near the border at Deniliquin, maybe 34, 35 degrees, um, but still very warm. And on um, the following day, on Friday, still, again, hot in the north, uh, northern inland, low low 40s, the maximum temperatures. Okay, maximum temperatures are low 40s. And, that, and then the change on Sunday, is that right? Yeah, so the change on Sunday, that's, that's when we see a bigger dent in temperatures if we just uh, push through on that one. So on Saturday, it's still quite mild. It's on Saturday that change starts to reach the coast and the south of the state. Right. So we start to see those temperatures drop back to the 20s, the high 20s in the in the far south near the Victorian border, and the low 20s along the coast. But on Sunday, it's not until Sunday that the temperatures over the northern inland at least drop below 40 degrees. Um, uh, so right up until Saturday, they're still over that northern inland. We've still got temperatures reaching the, uh, 40, at least 40 degrees. Okay. All right, Stephen. Thanks for that. You're welcome, bye. It's 21 minutes to one here on the New South Wales Country Hour. You're with Michael Condon for the New South Wales Country Hour on ABC Radio New South Wales. Well, the pandemic put a spotlight on supply chains, whether it be fuel, fertiliser, chemicals or labour, and in some cases key agricultural inputs were in short supply. While supply chains have largely returned to normal, have we learnt anything? Have we learned any lessons from that period? Retired Air Vice Marshal John Blackburn is now the chair of the Institute of Integrated Economic Research Australia, and he says Australia needs to do more to protect key inputs and protect food security. He was uh, speaking at the delegate uh, show Farmer Forum. He'll be speaking at the at the forum this Friday at six pm, and he told Josh Becker that there's uh, definitely more work to be done. Agriculture and food security is absolutely an essential part of our nation's security and well-being. If we don't have that, then our society stops. And so when we look at agriculture, we have to understand how does it fit into the bigger picture of the nation, but also a point I've been pushing, which is not discussed much, or I haven't seen it anywhere, is that because we have presently the ability to generate more food production than we consume, although there are risks to that, 
we need to think about how do we use that excess food production. Yes, great to export wine and lobsters to the Chinese, but if we've got an excess production, how could we use that in future to help stabilise our neighbours when they run into food production problems in the future thanks to climate change? For example, Indonesia, Papua New Guinea, uh, New Zealand, the Pacific Islands, if we've got excess food production, how could we come up with sort of agreements with them on how we could help them if they run into food security problems? Because if we don't, then we're going to see mass movement of people, instability, as we've seen in the Middle East, and that fundamentally will impact our security and well-being in Australia. So when we talk about food security, I think the Department of Agriculture says that Australia exports around 70% of its agricultural goods and only imports about mm. 10% and says that when mm. it comes to food security, we actually rate pretty well compared to other countries around the world. But to your mind, what, what do you think is the, the key challenge or, or key issue when it comes yeah. to food security for, for agriculture? The reason I got involved in this, because I've been doing this thing on national risk and resilience and everything else for a couple of years, is that I heard the agriculture minister, when David Littlewood said, claim there's no food security problem because we produce three times as much as we consume. And off you go. And I thought, hang on, that sounds really shallow statement. Where's the risk assessment? So I went looking for, well, who's done an assessment of agriculture and all the inputs and supporting things? And guess what? There isn't one. So I then started getting involved. I went to the Victorian Farmers Federation for two seminars and I presented there in New South Wales Farm Riders. And I started to look into it and I thought this is a political statement. It doesn't based on substantive thing. Because think about this. If you're a farmer and you're trying to produce food, goods, whatever, what are the most immediate things that will affect you if the supply chain gets interrupted? So fuel. 90% of all our fuels are imported and the way we're going, we could be 100% fuel import dependent by the end of the decade for a whole bunch of reasons. Add blue. When the Chinese cut off supply of high-grade urea in 2022, uh, we were looking potentially at losing a lot of our logistics system because the modern diesel trucks need add blue. The fertilisers we import, more than 80% of some key ones, and if they get delayed, we've got a problem. We import the machinery. We import workforce. The logistics systems around the country are vulnerable. And, of course, we need chemicals. So when you think about all those inputs that allow a farmer or a farm industry to produce, they all have risks involved in them that have not been analysed. There is no energy security risk assessment, for example. Come back out a little bit broader and think about the whole sector. We're going through a major energy transformation in this country for which there is not a risk assessment or a coherent plan. We've seen overseas where large farm entities have been subject to cyber attacks. We have serious infrastructure limitations in this country with rail and road and how they're affected. Well, without the infrastructure, you can't farm. We have real issues with our ports in terms of, A, foreign ownership for quite a few of them, but also the scale of what we can do. We have no control at all over the shipping that is so important for the import of about 90% of all the goods that we need by volume and for export. And so when we don't have the Australian flag ships or any control over it, that's a problem. As we see the economic issues that we're going to are dealing with and will continue to deal with, that affects agriculture. Of course, biosecurity is something on everyone's minds. And as the farming groups themselves have been saying, we've got to be really careful about how we prepare for 
the impacts of climate change and potential impacts on water. When you look at all those factors, it's a really big assumption when an agriculture minister says, don't you worry about food security because we currently produce three times what we eat. That's simplistic and it's misleading. Retired Air Vice Marshal John Blackburn, who's now the chair of the Institute for Integrated Economic Research Australia. And you can hear more from John at the Delegate Show Farmer Forum on 6pm at the Delegate Showground this Friday. It's uh, coming up to uh, uh, a quarter to one here on the country hour and getting quite a few texts and uh, um, uh, on the water issue. Simon from Wellington is wondering where all the water from Burundong Dam is going. He says it was over 100%. 100% full at the end of 2022. Now it's uh, at 54%. He says, I hope it's not going to the marshes as they will drown. Uh, and uh, on the issue of soil carbon, John from Armadale's texted in saying, after 25 years of soil organic carbon research across the sheep wheat belt of New South Wales, accumulation of soil organic carbon under habitat reconstruction sites has been measured and monitored under overstory, midstory, and, and understory native species and perennial native grasses, pasture established on degraded cropping country, it can accumulate significant soil organic carbon, says John. Uh, someone says, we don't need the controlling emission swindle to have the healthiest soil and environment. And uh, also uh, someone says, uh, carbon farm, John, from Narandra says we, we need to be careful, always clear about the big difference between soil carbon and tree carbon. They're two very different things. Soil carbon projects are physically measured and to be successful they need carbon careful management. Tree carbon can be a lock up and forget system and uh, and it's not always properly measured, says John. You're listening to the Country Hour. It's uh, coming up to, as I said, it's uh, 14 minutes to one now. Well, let's uh, turn our attention to uh, wool now and wool growers across the state and further afield. They're in Bathurst this week for the annual Great Southern Supreme Merino Show. It's the first time in the event's 77-year history that it's been held in Bathurst after many years of being hosted in Canberra. Tim Fuchs has been been along to have a bit of a look. It's been a big move for the event to now be held in Bathurst. It originally started in Goulburn and has evolved over the years and decades with the number of entries this year well above what was expected. Rick Power from Grenfell is the president of the Great Southern Merino Show Committee. The last 12 years pre-COVID in Canberra and we decided we'd make a move and come to Bathurst to an old historic showground. Just a bit more central, we moved it a month later into February and... I guess we targeted for 200 show sheep and we actually exceeded that to 269 show sheep. So we're pretty excited, rams and ewes. That's great. And you put that down to the move here? Yeah, definitely. Obviously a lot more support from the north, from the New England studs and the Macquarie studs. And January was just a tricky time with kids going back to school and holidays and bushfires. So it's been a good move. That's great. So tell me about, about the response you've had and, uh, and the move to Bathurst in regards to getting uh, sheep in here from far and wide. Oh, the support's been magnificent, really. I mean... They've got the Bathurst Merino Association here. There's been a great support and setting up of the showground and Tracy Seaman, she's been terrific to work with. But obviously the support from the studs, um, the location, easy to get to, very central, plenty of accommodation in Bathurst. But I guess just the timing too is, is this is a big hit out before they go to the Royal Easter at Sydney show. Yeah, indeed. So what actually happens over the next couple of days? So we've got uh, numerous classes, obviously, from Ultrafine, 
super fine, fine medium, fine wool and medium strong classes, uh, merinos and pole merinos, rams and ewes, and they're judged on their wool type of uh, uniformity of type, conformation and structure. There are judges from around the state here in Bathurst for the show this week, among them Cam Munro, who runs a merino stud at Warren. The merino uh, style has changed you know, over the uh, previous years, as in you know, planing up. Um, so you know, what I'm looking for is um, one thing we producing a merino you don't want to be saving money on wool packs and uh, you know so I'm looking for first of all a really good confirmation and a good barrel good springer rib and uh, plenty of wool you know as I say they are merino so we want to still be producing as, as much wool as we possibly can and, and you know and uh, and fertility anything you know over that 100% you know it's a positive in the lambing. Well, yeah now to, to me they look pretty good yeah. what about to you? Yeah, no, they, you know, they're very well presented. Um, you know, we're just uh, on the August shorns here now. So there's two categories, the August shorn and the March shorn. And so the Marches, you know, will come out this afternoon. But the August shorns, uh, you can, yeah, certainly see, a, you know, a lot more body, a lot more, you know, I find them a little bit easier to judge, you know, to be able to see the full confirmation, feet, structure, um, yeah, just top line, good barrel. You've got to be able to... When you're judging sheep, they've got to be, have a commercial approach. The show comes at a time when growers are keeping a nervous eye on wool prices, which have once again been on a downward trend for the past year. There's also been the move away from wool in some circles due to the demand for sheep meat. Jeff Rayner from Pominara Stud at nearby Sally's Flat says despite that, there's still a fair amount of positivity in the industry on the back of a good summer of rain in some areas. Wool has declined over the last few years in production because it was a lot easier to have uh, uh, shedding sheep uh, producing a lamb for you know, two or $300. Um, now that the lambs have come back in price, um, those that are producing wool off the mothers that are producing those lambs are doing a lot better because they've got a, a two-way... Uh, cash flow. What's your view on prices at the moment for wool? Because they, they have taken a bit of a dip recently. Yes, they've been uh, up and down and in and out, uh, which is hard to budget for, with. Um, I think there's, there's a lot more um, there's a lot more fat in the actual wool market if the uh, buyers would like to, to contribute. Um, but uh, you know, there's so many world fractions that's uh, that's affecting that. You know, the wars, uh, the shipping costs at the moment because they've got to go round the long way to get to Europe um, and to China. Um, so if we can settle that down, I think there's a lot more in the wool market. Jeff Rayner from uh, Pominara Stud at Sally's Flat, ending that report from Tim Fuchs at the Great Southern Merino Show on in Bathurst this week. Hello, I'm Sally Sara. Join me for The World Today. Fire crews on alert in parts of Victoria amid forecasts of catastrophic fire conditions. The federal government proposes changes to veterans' affairs. Will it make the claims process simpler and faster? And it's Tilly time. The Matildas take on Uzbekistan in Melbourne tonight in their bid to qualify for the Paris Olympics. But will they win without injured skipper Sam Kerr? Those stories and much more coming up on The World Today. 
And before we go to markets, Meat Livestock Australia is expecting a slight reduction in the cattle herd this year, easing by less than 1% to 28.6 million head by the end of June. It's the latest in the MLA's uh, cattle uh, projections, looking at uh, animals processed, carcass weights and meat production and exports. The MLA's Stephen Bignall says the cattle herd has stabilised. So it's been quite a good um, northern uh, wet season, which means that northern Australia, where around 50% of the herd are, will be in a really good position for for production purposes into 2024. And so that means that there's the capacity in that part of the herd, that half of the herd to maintain. And then in southern Australia, conditions, again, haven't been disastrous and, and the outlook is quite good into 2024. So any reduction in the herd in the south will just be because uh, capacity has sort of reached it, it, its limit. What are you looking at as we look across the country in terms of the slaughter figures? What are the projections? So in 2023, slaughter jumped uh, 1.2 million head. We don't have such a big jump this year. We've got slaughter uh, returning to sort of 10-year averages and, and sitting at 7.9 million head. That'll be a jump of over 10% in the next uh, calendar year. Steve Bignall there from Meat and Livestock Australia. Let's go to markets. First up, let's go to Casino Cattle. The cow market was the highlight of the sale, with most prices improving by 10 to 15 cents in the yarding of 1,500 head, which included 600 cows. Young cattle were well supplied in a fairly good quality yarding, consisting mainly of vealless moina cattle. The market varied considerably with buyers selective in their purchases, with restock awareness deers selling from 10 to 20 cents cheaper, depending on quality. They ranged from 234 to 420 cents, very few steers over 400. Restock awareness heifers ranged from 220 to 288 cents. Yearling steers 298 to 370, and the yearling heifers topped at 310. Bullocks and steers held firm ranging from 284 to 302 cents, while grown heifers topped at 283. There were several runs of heavy high-yielding cows through the sale. Buyers competed strongly, resulting in two-score cows selling from 190 to 235 cents, three-score cows averaged 239, and heavy four-score cows sold from 242 to 265 cents, best of the heavy bulls, 260 cents. This is Doug Robson at Casino. Let's go to Carcor Sheep and Lambs. Numbers lifted 1,200 for a yarning of 4,000 lambs. Quality remained mixed with mostly trade and stool lambs penned with limited numbers of heavyweights. All the regular bars were present. Lightweight two score lambs to 18 kilos were $10 dearer, selling from 68 to 125. Trade lambs weighing 20 to 24 kilos were 8 to $10 dearer and sold between 130 and 165. The heavyweight lambs penned over 24 kilos remained firm, selling from 164 to 190. Lambs to restockers lifted, lifted 15 to 20 and sold from 42 to 145. Hoggets were $20 to selling to 140. Numbers lifted in the mutton with 3,700 mixed quality sheep penned, where prices lifted 15 to 20 across most categories. Merino ewes sold from 58 to 100. Crossbred ewes 40 to 135. Merino weathers sold from 38 to 126. And crossbred weathers reached 130. Rams sold to $40. This has been Angus Williams for MLA at CTLX. Let's go to cow, sheep and lambs now. Rob Pierce is there. Good afternoon. 
Good afternoon, Michael. There were 5,400 lambs up by 2,500. Quality improved greatly, particularly for the heavyweights with a good run of well-finished lambs. There were mainly trade and heavyweights. Pen stores were limited in supply. Medium trades were firm and heavies were 10 dearer. 20, 22 kilos, 128 to 135. 22 to 24, 149 to 159, averaging 600 to 650 cents. Heavyweights were 5 to 10 dearer. 24 to 26, 162 to 170. 26 to 30, 176 to 192, and 30 plus 195 to a top of 236, averaging 630 to 650 cents. And mutton numbers increased, 750 for 1600. Quality was quite good. Prices were up 5 to $10, with heavy first cross use selling from 77 to 120, averaging 300 cents. It's been Rob Pearce from MLA at Cowra. Thanks, Rob. Let's go to Yass, Sheep and Lambs now, and Graham Richard. Good afternoon. The lamb numbers lifted by 3,000 for 7,100 fair to good quality lambs. There was a good mix of weights from light two-score lambs to hard-fed heavyweights. The market sold to a firm to deer a trend. The two-score processing lambs were firm with buyers purchasing less weight and they sold from 58 to 118. Trade lambs were 3 to 5 dearer, the 20 to 22 kilos, 124 to 138, 22 to 24, 131 to 160, and they averaged 610 cents. 24 to 26 kilo lambs were $2 dearer, 146 to 175, and averaged 620 cents. Heavyweights gained 7, 161 to 180, with extra heavies reaching 185. Heavy hoggets were $12 dearer and sold to 138. Light and heavy mutton sold around ten dollars dearer, while the medium weights were firm. Medium weight used fifty to sixty-four dollars to eighteen kilos. Heavy crossbred used one hundred five to one thirty-eight, and merinos reached one twenty-eight. Most averaged between three sixty and three ninety. And this has been Graham Richard. Let's go to Mossvale cattle now. Good afternoon, Michael. Numbers increased by three sixty for a total yarding of one thousand sixty-three fair to good quality cattle. All categories were well represented, including some outstanding high yielding yearlings suiting the trade, reaching four hundred cents, and some good lines of feeder steers topping a three sixty-five. All the usual buyers were operating, with the addition of some extra restocker buyers selling to a dearer market. Trade yielding steers two eighty-two to four hundred, heifers two sixty to three eighty-four, feeder steers fifteen better, medium weights three ten to three sixty-five, heavier steers three hundred eight to three fifty. Strong competition for young cattle returning the paddock. Steers 308 to 484. The heifer portion 268 to 340. Heavy grain cattle firmed to a few cents better. Topping of 308. Prime cows lifted 6, 220 to 250. Leaner cows to the restockers topped the 239 cents per kilo. This is David Kent at Mossvale for MLA. Let's go to Singleton Cattle now and Angus Barlow. A big run of Angus cows, pregnancy tested back in calf to the Angus bulls, weighing 5.30 kilos and realising 262 cents and heading back to the paddock, highlighted today's Singleton cattle market where agents yarded 843 head. Quality was generally good, although the secondary types are rather plain or the regular buyers at the rail, along with a few extra restocker orders. Light restocker steer wieners couldn't reach the buoyant heights of last week to be 15 cents cheaper, 252 to 414. Medium weights up 5 cents, 318 to 412. B-muscle calves over 330 kilos, the local butcher orders reaching 346. Light restocker heifer wieners, cheaper trends, 250 to 280. Medium weights 10 cents dearer, 262 to 292. Yielding steers over 400 kilos to the lot feeders, dearer by 28, 286 to 378. Medium weight yielding heifers back to the paddock up by 36, 260 to 318. Two score cows up by 18, 120 to 230, whilst prime heavy three scores 20 cents better off, 238 to 254. Angus Barlow, MLA at Singleton. 
And that's the market information for today and uh, broadcasting tomorrow from the Grains Research and Development Corporation uh, event in Dubbo. So uh, keep listening for that tomorrow on the Country Hour. We're heading up to news time.